Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Hello and welcome back. Last week, we spoke to Christian musician and singer-songwriter Matthew West, and he shared a lot of good advice about the values that guide his life and his overall mission of positivity and how he thinks about raising his daughters to be independent, strong women and having their know-what-if summer, which I loved. My guest this week is no stranger to leaning on her values to help guide her through her career, and she has the resume to prove it. Remember that you need to master the work in front of you before you take over another big job. Too many people want to skip over the early steps, expecting that the little things don't matter. Let me assure you, they matter a lot. If you're not able to manage the basics of a job, if you cut corners, or if you blow off the details, you're in too much of a hurry and you won't be top of mind for new opportunities. Nina Powell McCormick has served as Assistant Secretary of State for Educational and Cultural Affairs and Deputy Undersecretary of Public Affairs and Public Diplomacy, and as a Senior White House Advisor as Assistant to the President for Presidential Personnel. And Dina now serves as Global Head of Sustainability and Inclusive Growth at Goldman Sachs. Dina, um, having my fangirl moment anytime I get a chance to talk to you, um, and I could talk to you about a million things, um, and I, we are going to get your best advice, but I thought we would start with you maybe giving us just a quick thumbnail sketch of where you were born when you came to America, and just like a quick little bio pic of yourself, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Well, I'm always honored to be with you, Dana, and the fangirl goes right back at you. Um, You know, your book, Everything is Going to Be Okay, is prominently featured uh, at our home with six teenage and college-age daughters. So I can't think of a more important message um, than than you give in the book. And so thanks for being such an awesome messenger Mm -hmm. and role model to the McCormick Powell girls. Thank you. (laughs) To so many other young women in the country. So I was born in Cairo, Egypt, um, and uh, had one sister at the time, who was my younger sister, and my family, my parents decided to immigrate uh, from Cairo to Dallas, Texas, when I was uh, a very young girl. And um, it was really the product, I think, of them really wanting to make sure that their daughters could reach their potential and believing in the promise of America. And so, you know, I, you've heard this a little bit before, big culture shock moving from Cairo to Dallas and not speaking English and wanting so desperately to assimilate. Um, but having parents who really taught me early on that there is nothing um, 
more more special than becoming Americans. We were becoming Americans at the time, but they found this really remarkable way to balance that um, we believed that we were, again, so incredibly fortunate to be living and growing up and pursuing our potential in America, but always trying to make sure that we remembered where we came from. Yeah, indeed. How did you end up working um, in politics eventually, but now you're in business, you're at Goldman Sachs, but you had a little bit of an interesting path as you <laughs> winded your way through as, as many of us do. And that's part, you know, that's also part of the message of the book, which is that it's okay to have a meandering path to finally get where you want to be. Absolutely. Mine was certainly meandering. Um, my parents growing up, um, used to tell uh, me and my sisters, you know, we um, left our homeland, we left our church, we left our friends, we left our family, so that you and your sisters could pursue your dreams and be anything you want to be, as long as you're a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. <laughs> um, for them, those were the stable professions. They knew that I could take care of myself if I had a stable profession. Um, and so very dutifully, I, I figured out early on engineering and medicine were probably not going to happen. And so I got into law school having um, gone to the University of Texas in Austin and um, kind of kind of randomly, I had to pay for college um, waitress for the first year, but then randomly had a chance to work in the state Senate, you know, as an intern and then a staff assistant and then even as a junior policy aide. Um, but I really just did that to pay for college. I wasn't thinking that would be a career. And I got into law school and I was heading that way when um, one of the few women from Texas who had risen to federal office, Senator Kay Belly Hutchison called me and said, why don't you come uh, to Washington and do, you know, an internship for me and just defer law school for a year. Hmm. And um, I was totally stressed out because I thought my parents were going to kill me. Yep. And sure enough, you know, I sent them the, the letter, the deferral letter, Dana, I'm so old. I faxed it to them <laughs> I clearly and plainly said one year from now you can return. And my dad he, he looks bad at this part of the story. He looks better later, but he just said, I don't even know why we left Egypt. Because oh. you know, to, to not go to law school when you've been accepted, you know, was so unheard of. And I, and that, that of course, began the path in how I met you. I worked for mm -hmm. Senator Hutchison. I worked in the House Majority Leadership. And then, of course, worked for our favorite presidential candidate, George W. Bush, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and eventually in the White House. And I share that story a lot because... You know, I understand the uh, panic some young women feel about having a certain path and like meeting the goals. And, you know, I got to graduate from college and do this internship. And then a couple of years later, go back to business school or journalism school and do this and do that. And I really get that because there's safety and there's a sense of control in doing that. The issue, though, is you might miss a journey you didn't even know was coming your way you know, if you don't take a little risk. And so I feel that um, I really encourage kind of thinking about taking a little bit of risk and, and jumping off some cliffs a couple times in your career. They may, it may or may not work out and that's going to be okay too, because you're going to learn a lot. But had I kind of done the, the sort of prescribed path, I would have missed a journey that was mm. obviously amongst the most meaningful in my life professionally and personally. And one of the biggest risks, risks you can take when you're early on is not in terms of like your livelihood per se, but taking um, a risk on a possible future presidential candidate. Yes. Right. So how did that happen? 
Well, of course, you know, being from Texas and having been in the state Senate when the, the, then the president was governor of Texas, I had hugely admired um, so much of what he did. You know, um, I remember him coining the, the, or using the phrase compassionate conservative, and that appealed to me so much. And I thought to myself, that's, that's what I am. Me too. That's exactly for me. I was like, wait, that's me. Exactly. Exactly. And also you might remember, but you know, he was, he very much in Texas, um, was an incredibly uh, bipartisan governor, very mm-hmm. close to Lieutenant Governor Bob Bullock. And I just thought, you know, this is this is um, somebody and, and a set of policies that that I understand and believe. And um, when he, you know, even the rumors, you know, were that he was gonna run for governor, remember he started having people come to the governor's mansion as he thought about it. And, uh, you know, won't bore uh, the audience with every detail, but I was a little bit stocky and uh, called, Carl Rove and a lot of different people to see if I could work on the campaign and eventually was able to work in Washington uh, on Victory 2000, which really was the campaign after he won the nomination. And then you'd come to the White House. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this podcast is because you take over a job called presidential personnel. And I'll have you describe what all that entails, because it is a huge, huge undertaking. But the other reason I wanted to have you on is that you have seen over the course of uh, 20 or so years, what employers are looking for and mm-hmm. how that has maybe changed or what you look for when you are um, recruiting or spotting talent or you know, what stands out to you in a resume. I have all of those questions. You don't have to think about all of those right now, but maybe just describe for us just the scope and scale of what you have to do when you take on the role of PPO. Sure. You know, it, I think it's not widely enough known that every U.S. president, upon their election, um, are responsible for the appointments of thousands and thousands of people across the government. Now, luckily, we have a very stable, you know, um, civil and career service across the agencies. Um, but really, when a president takes over, just you know, like like President Biden had, I think maybe close to five thousand political appointees to name. And um, they immediately switch, as you know, Dana, on January 20th. And these are the cabinet, the sub cabinet, the ambassadors that serve our nation across the world, key boards and commissions, intelligence commissions and other important commissions. And really, President Bush was very, very focused on these, uh, especially well, a number of reasons. One, he certainly believed that people are policy that, you know, who you place in those roles is critical and, um, you know, ultimately uh, policy is really implemented um, by individuals. And so uh, he he was very focused. Second, of course, it was after 9-11. And so, you know, the national security positions across the government were ever more vital because at that time, as you remember, um, the number one job the president was focused on was ensuring that there would not be another horrific attack um, and loss of life of Americans. And so those positions, of course, seven months into his administration were uh, amongst uh, the most critical that we focused on. And so he personally um, uh, selected uh, every single Senate confirmed position of which there are, you know, now I think, you know, several thousand. Um, And they're really important and they require working with the cabinet member and then getting, you know, working with the appointee to get confirmed. Um, And you learn a lot. You're right. I learned a lot about how candidates stand out, um, how you really could sort of feel if somebody 
um, was really serving to serve our country and to give back. And that really made a huge, huge difference in, you know, the dedication to the roles. What do you think then looking fast forward, um, maybe you could tell people a little bit about your role there at Goldman Sachs now. And um, what do you think, if anything, has changed from what you were maybe looking for in people? Um, obviously, the roles are going to be different or the responsibilities will be different than when you're staffing a an administration and a government. Um, but are there qualities that you looked for then that you continue to look for now in the people that you want to work with you? Absolutely. Um you know, today, um, in many ways, you know, obviously you want smart, talented people, but the truth is you really want values-based um, individuals. And, you know, I think about your team, even Dana, and all the teams that you've had. I mean, it's really people that are about the mission, about the work, and team-oriented. I mean, it sounds corny, but I'm telling you, it really is the number one thing. You know, individuals who really believe in the work are excited about it, um, but recognize they're part of a team and that when the team succeeds, everybody succeeds. For young women, I often say, you know, can I spot a young woman who's going to also be reaching back, reaching back to help the next generation, no matter how young she is, thinking about I'm a mentor, even if I if I got to this role then I have an opportunity that others don't. And what am I doing to invest kind of behind me? And I think that is a legacy. You and I've talked about, you know, if, if more leaders would ask themselves kind of where are the women, where are all the women that worked for you? And if you find over many, many years that they're in promoted positions, that they're, they're they've done really well. I think that's an, that's one of the coolest legacies, right? Any senior woman um, can have in any industry. And so I think that starts early. And so thinking about that. And then I do think um, the hard work part. Um, I'm not just saying this. I don't know anyone that works harder than you. I know you're up at like That's four not true. five. <laughs> you're every paper, every newsletter, you're, the mo- you're so prepared. You know, I used to say one of my mentors, Condi Rice, you, no one could out-prepare her. Nope. You walk into a meeting, there was no way. And the best would- thing about that too for her, I think, is that it made her very powerful in the room. Unbelievably. Mm-hmm. You have to be, you know, we, we, we have to be the most prepared. And I think that shows and it really distinguishes us. And then humility. You know, I have this new um, theory that there's, there's a thing called strong humility. And I'll just give you a quick story since we're on Secretary Rice. I remember traveling with her when I was Assistant Secretary of State um, in, in pretty tough years um, in the Bush administration, and we would go um, quite a bit to the Middle East, and we would see all the heads of state, crown princes, kings, uh, you know, and, and we would meet with them. And I remember one time being in a huge palace, sitting in this majestic room, and um, the the head of state looking at her and saying, with all due respect, Madam Secretary, please do not come here and preach to me about freedom and democracy um, and and your country. And I remember kind of being taken aback, like, what is she going to say? And it was, I thought, rude. Um, And she said, oh, absolutely not, Your Highness. She didn't miss a beat. She said, I would never come and preach to you about uh, my country, because quite frankly, it wasn't all that long ago that my own country counted me as three-fifths of a man. And so with all of our imperfections, the United States of America is trying to be a more perfect nation, a more perfect union. But the thing that we know you must have 
is the ability to give your citizens rights and self-governance and an ability to speak um, freely. And so I just share with you that we're lear- we have learned the hard way, but are, but are, we believe, a special nation because of that. And I think your citizens would benefit from that, too. And I just, I mean, how powerful is that, right? Just humble, um, strong, and I think really left a searing impression on this man. Mm-hmm. That's why so many people say, why doesn't she run for president? But as she's explained, that's just like not what she would thrive at. I, mean, I remember hearing her say that um, in the campaign in 2004, when she was national security advisor, she had to travel with the president at all times for the because of her duties at the White House. But they were also on the reelection campaign and that, you know, it would start at six in the morning with a briefing and then eight o'clock at night. They've been going for 14 hours and he was still President Bush was still raring to go and excited about the next day. And she said, all I wanted to do was crawl into bed. And she needed more time to, uh, you know, process and, and get ready for the next day. And um, she recognized early on that that kind of public service in ter- terms of elected office was not for her. So um, you can have lots of strengths and qualities that lead you into a path of um, strong humility, uh, including in knowing what you don't want to do and to resisting people trying to push you into something like that. Um, are there other skills, aside from values, are there other skills that are important that people think about? For example, um, obviously you have the six daughters that you and Dave are raising and they are going all going to do amazing work. But I imagine that at some point they're going to come to you and say, should I go to law school? Should I go to graduate school? Do I need an MBA? What else should I need to be doing? What else do I need to add, do to add to this resume so that I'm attractive to employers? Sure. You know, that's, that's another big lesson of, of my life and yours is um, careers in different sectors, which is really, really hard. But when given the opportunity, I really encourage people to do it. You know, kind of long, long gone, I think, are the days where somebody might work at, you know, General Motors for, for 40 years and then retire, right? Yep. Um, we're going to have many different chapters to our careers. And I found that I brought a differentiated skill set, having worked in government and the private sector, Wall Street, um, and then, of course, engaged quite a bit with nonprofit organizations. So I kind of like to think of it as the private sector, government, and broadly speaking, the public and academic and nonprofit sectors. And I learned so much when I was in, you know, obviously in government for all those years that I was able to use at Goldman Sachs and vice versa. You know, I learned so many things, of course, um, at the firm that I think made me a more effective person in government. And so I do think that really differentiates you. Uh, And I think you can do it in a number of ways. I think you can actually have different chapters in the career and different roles in entirely different industries or while you're like what what you and Peter do, you work so much with nonprofit organizations. You have been very invested in um, PEPFAR in Africa or working with organizations like Strive. And I do think that's given you both a, a whole understanding of deep and important issues and solutions to those issues. And so I really encourage people to do the same, that even if you're 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 at the day job, but you know, there's so many organizations that could use assistance even on a voluntary basis and it really rounds you out and definitely makes your resume stand out um, did i read recently where you were quoted i believe about the importance of public service as a leadership quality 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that one of the, you know, most meaningful things, of course, and you know this well, is to serve your country. And um, there are a number of ways, of course, to do it. There's there's public service. Um, but, you know, I'm a big believer in encouraging a national public service, you know, especially as we are kind of in our country today looking for ways, um, frankly, to find unity. Um, you know, I look at models, um, different models that require national service. Obviously, some countries requirement in the form of military service. But, you know, I think about one of the greatest investments that we could make. Um, and there's actually bipartisan legislation right now um, that's very focused on doubling the number of uh, AmeriCorps volunteers and Teach for America. I, I think that so many of our young leaders today, when they're put in, you know, cohorts, um, with people that are diverse in every way and serve in a common purpose for our nation. I just think that's one of the greatest ways to unite our country, right? Mm -hmm. That common service and common purpose. And so when I think about um, public service, I define it more broadly because I don't think you, you know, have to think of it as, you know, a political job or a, a government job. I think you can do so much more. Obviously, I think teaching and nursing, you know, I think COVID, Dana, really showed us how much we need to respect and value those that we are uh, calling essential workers today. Mm. And I think essential for so many reasons. Um, they're essential because our healthcare system would fall apart without them, our education system would fall apart without them. Um, but I think if we shine that light, that it's also service, um, I think more of our, you know, young people will go into those professions and feel very honored in doing them. Speaking of the pandemic and COVID, uh, a few questions about that, F because some young people are grappling with this. Some people really want to come back to the office. Some people would prefer to not come back to the office or they prefer a hybrid model. Um, do you think it's important for young people if they have the option to be back in the office, should they take it or has work and the workplace changed since we uh, had COVID 18 months ago? Um, I think there's a lot of different views on this. You know, I think that there are certain, you know, professions that are really more of an apprenticeship culture, you know, really working. Um, I have a, an amazing team right now and a young uh, intern who has you know, been in many of my meetings as we're working with clients. And, you know, she has certainly expressed to me how much she has learned. I mean, just being in the room and, and watching. Um, and I, and I guess I would say that, that it's hard to just sort of have a blanket answer to that because there's, you know, a lot of variety in the kind of work that people do. Some are not fortunate enough, quite frankly, back to the essential workers. They don't really have a choice. They're showing up every day because that is what their job requires. So I think, again, a deep respect for that is important. And then I, I you know, respect other views that, you know, um, there will be changes in the way that we work. Um, that was pr probably some changes that were coming anyway, and COVID certainly accelerated those. I think I can only speak to my own experience that the young people that um, are on our team are very excited <laughs> to be together and to have a chance to learn um, in the room. And, you know, I think that's just, I find that's a little bit harder over Zoom, myself mm -hmm. personally. We'll be right back with more of this interview after this. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? 
It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. At this point, and setting aside whether they're in person or not, because we're just going to have to deal with this as we have this transition from the pandemic to a post-pandemic life. What importance do you place on internships? I think they're everything. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I think that I bet you and I, if we looked at all of our mutual friends, I bet you 90% got the jobs you know, that, that led to the jobs they have today through an internship. Yeah. Um, I think when you intern, it shows like a real passion and interest. You learn from sort of the very beginning about, by the way, internships help you figure out what you don't want to do. You yes. Know? Before, <laughs> before you go down a path that you think, yep. um, oh, wait, I don't, you know, maybe I wish I hadn't gone to law school <laughs> or mm-hmm. I wish I hadn't invested in this because it turns out that's not what I want to do. So internships of by the way, lots of different internships, right? You want to have a couple that are totally different kinds of experiences. So you figure out what most interests you. So I think they are so important. And also I think they're important because that's where your network begins, right? And I think again, young women, and you talk about this um, and everything's going to be okay. Being nice to each other and network and sharing your network and sharing your contacts, that really begins in internships. And I think it is ultimately something that we have to be a little bit more deliberative about um, as women. I don't know if you agree, but I think- I do. And I wondered if you pick up on, you're all- uh, I always think it's hilarious when some people think that the boss doesn't know what's going on. (laughs) Bosses have eyes in the back of their heads, just like parents- so they know who's gossiping around the office, but you also know who's being willing to help. And that person will, will stick in your mind. Like there might not be a growth opportunity right then for somebody that you see as being generous to a colleague, but you won't forget that. Absolutely not. Well, it it absolutely reverberates. You know, the people that are generous and team oriented. Uh, people tend to flock to. I mean, even like I noticed there's a couple of people I'm so proud of my team and they're they're very junior, but everyone wants to give them the assignments <laughs> because they mm-hmm. just know they'll, that there's that everyone wants to work with them. So it'll be smooth and easy, that the work product will be great. Um, and that, you know, ultimately they're going to be great ambassadors for whatever the initiative is. And so I, I think really seeing that um, is is something that I, you really get that feedback, Dana, from every level and people comment on it. And then you also just see again by the foot traffic <laughs> that goes their way, that, that it's interesting yeah. the same people get picked for the assignments over and over again. So, so having those kind of, you know, even just the positive attitude, you know, and, and again, you talk about this, yeah. I mean, just the positive attitude. Huge goes difference. Because we can you, teach you how to do right. the task, but if I don't want to be around you all day, then I'm not going right. to hire you. Right. Um, is it should people be willing to take what would be considered a lateral move? Because you know, some people, especially even right now, they're like, eh, I just don't really love what I'm doing. I'm not sure what I want to do, but they want to climb up the ladder. But at some sometimes, is it okay and important? And should you be willing to consider maybe a lateral move or even a geographical move so that you can get some different experience to figure out how to move up? 
Absolutely. You know, I, I've talked about this with you before, but um, I've made some mistakes. I mean, I've been so unbelievably blessed and lucky, but I've definitely, you know, zigged and zagged a bit <laughs> on the career path and, um, and meandered, as you said, a little bit. And the mistakes taught me so much. You know, it's it's at the time, it's really painful. Whatever the mistake is, I I, I made the wrong, you know, job choice here or, the, or working for the, made the wrong, wrong hire. Yeah. Or, or I made the wrong hire. Mm-hmm. And those failures are honestly, and I know it sounds cliche, they are the most important lessons and tools of my life because I learn them and I think, oh, that really hurt. How did I not see that? It just was a lack of experience. I'm really glad and I'm never going to do that again. And I'm going to be much smarter the next time. Mm-hmm. And whatever situation you're placed in, you've got that bucket now of experiences and tools that you just can't get otherwise. So big lesson for me is failure is truly a part of the journey and accept it. It hurts at the time. You'll look back and say, okay, I have grown so much. And that's one. Two, um, I was just with this unbelievably senior group of women. Um, I'll protect their names, but we're talking CEOs. And we all admitted something really powerful, um, which is, um, you know, that that the truth is one of our great weaknesses is what you call the sort of second guessing. You know, you go into a meeting, 90% of what you said was great. Maybe 10% would have been a little bit better. And you obsess about the 10%. Always. What, what a, you know, that holds us back. I'm going to confess to you that I work on it all the time, but it's something that I feel I want to share with young women and men. That is just something that truly you cannot, you can't change what happened, right? You can only move forward. And so really that's another big lesson that I think if we're more open about, I think more people will work on and understand, oh, it's not just me that feels that way. I mean, I, um, you know, I couldn't believe that these unbelievably powerful and senior women work on it too. Um, And so I think that's another, you know, really important thing. And you know what, I actually have a skill, Dana, that I now use because Dave, Dave's like, when I'm obsessing and I'm replaying something to him over and over again, he said he has a 15 minute rule. And so basically I get to do it for 15 minutes. And then after that, he's like, okay, you can go call Dana or someone else. now." <laughs> Cause he's not, he's had it. Done. Well, and that really have you me. learned um, to react differently or respond in a way that you hadn't before? So like, obviously anytime you're in a white house, there's criticism or at the state department, you're going to get criticism from somebody somewhere. Sometimes it can be about you or usually it's about your boss, the president. Um, I remember I used to take that so personally, if it was Mm -hmm. about him, I would take it so personally. And I do feel like I've learned a little bit now how to react to it. Maybe not always with myself, but I can help other people do that. And I don't want to go through um, the reason you and I had an exchange a couple of weeks ago, but mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. as soon as I read something that had been said about you, I was like, oh gosh. And it's and now it's seven o'clock in the morning. I was like, yeah, she's going to so read this and mm-hmm. she's going to be worried mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. it. And I'm going to tell her, I'm like, no, no, think about it this way. Try thinking about it this way instead. I mean, this is amazing. Think of yourself this way because the other thing I wanted to point out to you in that regard is that I don't always break things down into gender roles, but I do think that given that situation, a man would not have obsessed about being uh, about what we were 
I feel like this is a little cryptic for people, but just trust me, people um, that are <laughs> my view, my listeners, uh, you understand what I'm saying, that there was something that was said that a guy would be like, oh, well, that's cool. I got mentioned. Nice. That's good. That's right. good for me. Whereas women are like, oh my gosh, are people going to think this? Or what should I do anything? I? And you feel a little bit powerless. But if you can just for like an hour, maybe reorient your thinking to think, yeah, good. It might be able to allow you to have a better day. Um, I can't tell you how much that meant to me because there's two truths that I know about you. You will tell me the truth <laughs> so you don't sugarcoat. And I need those friends. That's another thing in life. You really need those friends that tell you the truth because when you call them, you know that they're they're going to give it. They, they love you and they know you need to know. The yeah, truth. Well, and I would have told you if I thought this is bad, you need to get on top of this. Exactly. I would have done that for sure. And, and to how gracious of you to know that, of course, I was thinking about it. And um, I, you know, this this is something that's really hard. But a mentor once told me um, that if you are in a role at a table in the room where big decisions are being made and you're one of the decision makers, definitionally, you're going to be criticized. So you need to decide, are you a person that can be in the room at the table um, when those decisions are being made or not? Because that just means you can't take it. And, and, and not even, it wasn't even negative. It was sort of like, if you don't have thick enough skin, if you don't understand that you get to a certain level in your career, where definitionally you wouldn't be in that seat if you didn't have to make a call on things or use your best judgment to make a decision, which means, you know, some percentage of people are going to disagree with you. And so I think that framed it for me in such an important way that, of course, there's going to be criticism. Otherwise, what am I doing? I must not be doing something important enough that there isn't one. And two, I think, you know, I'm getting up there in the years, <laughs> Dana, and I, I, I've sort of just decided to step back and ask myself, can I say that by and large, in front of my daughters, I'm, I'm proud of, of, of my career. I'm proud of, of, you know, the choices that I've made, would there be things that maybe I wish I'd done a little differently or learned a little better or been a, a little more patient or whatever, lots and lots of flaws, that's for sure. But by and large, did I feel that I, you know, um, tried to have an impact and tried to do a good job every day and tried to, to be generous with whatever influence I may have had? Um, that's the, that's the question. Um, lots of mistakes, flaws, fa failures, mm -hmm. but can I put the totality up and say, I'm proud for my, for Dave and I's six girls to see it. I think so. Yeah, I think so. absolutely. And, and absolutely. That's the way I think we should all think about it. Um, and, and I've learned that from a lot of people who I've watched, you know, have really big setbacks in life and then come back, you know, and mm -hmm. come back and, and try to do their best. But oh my I gosh, like five people just ran through my mind of who all, I mean, like it just in, even right? in my own life, I'm like, wow, like, wow, you powered through and persevered. Well, and I also think that, you know, one of the things that we've learned at Goldman Sachs, to be honest with you, as we work with entrepreneurs or small business owners or this new initiative, we're very proud of 1 million black women. It's all, all almost always at a moment in someone's life where it's sort of the darkest when just one intervention of giving self-confidence or giving giving them confidence or giving them a, just a teeny bit of support is life-changing is 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 the transformational moment and so it's 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 not just kind of did you get criticized it's when the day is the darkest when it's the darkest hour did you make it past that and mm -hmm. continue on 
And that's, that's hard. And so I admire so many of the individuals we've had the privilege to work with who at the darkest moment showed the rest of us that they were so strong and capable and transformed themselves in their communities. So you, you've mentioned mentors and role models a couple of times, and there's a whole chapter in the book called um, How to Find a Mentor or How to Find a Role Model. And yes, my contention is that you don't have to have formal relationships with somebody even though many companies do have mentoring programs, and those are wonderful, but you can have a mentor even from afar. You might not even meet the person and be able to watch their career and watch what they do. I'm not talking about stalking them, though you should read all of their work um, or catch their interviews um, and, and support them where you can. But how do you go about suggesting to the people that you work with or that work for you how to find a mentor because you do a lot of this work at Strive as well, which is a wonderful nonprofit everyone should talk about. And our Fox listeners are familiar with it because we've wanted to highlight this amazing program that helps people get back to work after um, setbacks that they've had. Oh, it's, it's such an extraordinary program. And thank you. Thank you. And Peter for always being so supportive of it. It, as you know, takes the most vulnerable in our society and really helps them um, by mentoring and coaching. Um, and and it, and it's been transformative for so many individuals. I, I think I totally agree with you. I think the overly like um, prescribed formal mentoring program. Um, listen, for some people, it's great. I like to think of organic mentoring, and I think that's what you're describing. Um, somebody that you read a lot about and learn the lessons of their life, and that really makes you think differently about. Um, yourself and your potential and your career. Um, my example with Secretary Rice, where just by she didn't say, "Let me te- let me give you a teaching moment." Right, right, right. I was just lucky to be in that room, and that lesson taught me so much. It's not like she's a shrinking violet. Do you agree? Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, she's one of the strongest people I know, and for her to have have been so humble and yet so strong in such a critical moment when the stakes were so high. I've kept that lesson with me for so long. And I think about it regularly when I'm in, um, you know, certainly not as auspicious, but important moments. Um, I also think that what I define a mentor for me personally, what I need um, is, is someone who gives me the tough love, you know, back to you and I saying, you know, something was bad, said about me, or, mm-hmm. you know, I made a mistake in that meeting or the idea that I, that I talked to you about where I was second guess the person that, that told me, um, kind of, listen, you know, this is the big leagues, my friend, do you want to be in the big leagues or not? Mm-hmm. And just that sentence, it was like a 30 second call because he knew I was upset about something. Mm-hmm. And he called me and he said, if you're, if you want to be at the table, you're going to make tough decisions. You won't get them all right. And there's going to be criticism. You just have to decide, do you have what it takes to be at the table? I mean, Dana, can you imagine like, it's tough to hear. Um, I think he was a little nervous about saying it to me because I could have taken it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And that literally just changed everything for you. Everything. For I you. had a chief of staff on Capitol Hill, Holly Probst. She worked for um, Dan Schaefer. She's actually been a guest on this podcast because I wanted to go back and talk to the person who I considered my first mentor. I remember one time she she sent me in her place to a meeting on Capitol Hill. And I was the press secretary at the time. She was chief of staff. And she was uh, our boss was chairman of the Energy and Power Subcommittee. And she, could, she, she was double booked, so she needed to send me to the one meeting. And as I was walking out the door, she said, and remember, I don't expect you to be a little mouse in there. You have a seat at the table for a reason, 
which is kind of like a oh, similar wow. advice. And wow. I, I really, I needed to hear that from her too, you know, and President Bush wrote a book called Decision Points, which you and I've probably read a million times, but, and it's about 14 big decisions in his life and how he came to those decisions. And one of the most important things is to remember is if you do get that seat at the table and you're going to make a decision and you expect that you will have some criticism from some place, make sure that you feel like you can defend your decision-making process and can explain how you got to that decision. Because by the time he wrote that book, he basically said, these are the decisions I made. This is how I got to that decision. Now, you can disagree with the decision, but what he wanted was for people to, to be able to respect the decision-making process. And I thought that was pretty powerful as a, to, to learn about, which is, I understand you might disagree with me, but can we agree that I got to the decision in good faith? Totally. Uh, th that is, you know, so often... I mean, it's really hard, right? You're presented with a set of facts. You're trying to evaluate. Um, and certainly we watched, you know, lots of leaders do this, right? Um, and you're, you're making the very best decision. I think there's two critical foundational issues when you're making, you know, very important decisions. One is, did you really have all the facts? Did you actually push hard? Did you read what you needed to read? Were you prepared? And could you really, you know, be educated enough on the, on the issues and the pros and cons? And two, where were the motivations, right? If you're well-motivated and you're trying to do the best you can, um, you know, I, I think that counts for a lot. And I, and I remember thinking that, right, when we watched a lot of our, you know, government leaders and, you look back and it's really easy in hindsight to say, um, wow, that seemed like a terrible decision, right? A year later. But at the time, there's th that's again, that's a hard thing. W did they get all the facts in an unbiased way and was the motivation right? I don't know if you think about it that way, but I really yeah, think that. I think it's that's great. More to come right after this. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So I'm going to go into a little bit of a lightning round. And then at the end, I want you to tell, ooh, I got a couple ideas for questions I have that will be fun to, to end okay. on and, and moving, I'm sure. Um, so a little bit of a lightning round. Uh, do you have advice on when peop when somebody should leave a job? I get this question a lot, which is they're not, they're, maybe they're not happy. Maybe they don't know exactly what they want to do. That's often the case. They don't know what they want to do. Maybe the opportunity is not presenting itself at the current place. Maybe they got passed over for a promotion. Any of those things. When do you think somebody should leave a job? You know, that's obviously, you know, a very tough question and very personal to the circumstances and the individual. I think if you are not growing in a job and, and you, um, frankly are starting, I mean, just the, the, the most direct way to say it is you're feeling checked out. Mm -hmm. It's not fair to you or your employer. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, what I find that happens people um, tend to um, stay too long. And then in the process of thinking to yourself, well, I need to keep this job until I find another one, or, you know, maybe it's going to get better. Um, if you really kind of know in your gut, it's not the role for you. It's not the job for you. 
leave sooner rather than later. Because what happens is in the process of being checked out or feeling that way, you leave on a more negative note than when you started with. Mm -hmm. And that's, you feel bad about it. They feel bad about it. I mean, you know, in today's world, references are everything. And so it is a very scary decision. In fact, I mean, the scariest decision is to leave a job when you don't have one. Um, uh, but sometimes it also gives you the freedom. One of my dearest friends just did that. She had a huge job. I mean, an incredible job. Could have gotten any other job she wanted, you know, both in, in her institution um, or on the outside. And she said, no, I'm not doing it that way. She just quit. Everyone was in shock. And she said, I've just never had a chance in my life to take a pause who knows what's out there? I was just going to go get another sort of obvious job. But but by forcing myself to take time and really figure it out, I'm thinking of things I never would have thought of. I might start my own thing. I got these three calls I never would have gotten because people thought I'd never leave the institution. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of that, you're helping tens of thousands of people around the world, you know, here in America and and elsewhere start their own businesses and supporting them. That's what that's one of your roles there at Goldman Sachs. And I think it's will be, you know, over the, over the course of your life, you will look back and, and say, that was just your biggest contribution. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. And I get a little emotional thinking about how many lives, lives you have touched. What have you found holds people back from entrepreneurship and how could they get over that? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm so proud um, of the work that the Goldman, the Goldman Sachs and the Goldman Sachs Foundation and, and our teams um, have done because we really did you know, now, gosh, 17 years ago, um, began to really ask, what are, you know, the opportunities that we have to allocate our capital, to use our incredible um, talent and resources to drive change and to, and to make a difference. And we really believe in market-based solutions. You know, we really believe that, um, you know, investing in individuals and, you know, it, it's often that they, they were, um, they provide the passion the business idea, the courage, you know, why don't people start businesses? Because it is terrifying. <laughs> you fail. Um, you could hire a bunch of people and then maybe have to let some of them go. The, the, the market could turn on you. A competitor could emerge. I am so admiring of small business owners and entrepreneurs. I mean, it takes an enormous amount of courage to do it. And, you know, it, it really makes me so proud that what we provide is just, just, on the edges, to be honest, you know, uh, growth capital, um, coaching, business development ideas, helping them with their business plans, business education. Um, and, and you see then, you know, when you couple those interventions with the passion and abilities of these entrepreneurs, I mean, it just takes off. And 80% of our graduates have increased their revenues. Um, 60% of entrepreneurs who've gone through 10,000 women and 10,000 small businesses have created net new jobs. Um, obviously, COVID, you saw small business owners take a huge hit. So many of them were able to pivot. Restaurants became, you know, online takeout. Um, you know, so many uh, went virtual or digitally and, and were able to provide services. So I, I just think that especially, you know, in the United States, we should be so proud of our small business owners. And I think that they... Um, they have to adapt and be agile in a way that huge companies don't. And, and it's really important that we continue to invest in them. Absolutely. And support them where we can. Any recommendations for people on how to stand out with a resume or a LinkedIn profile so that 
you know, right now you might get 25 resumes for one position at Fox News. How do you end up in like the top three? Gosh, well, I'd love to have you answer because I know so many people want to come work with you. I so. actually really don't know. To be honest, I look at resumes sometimes. I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how. I, I feel like sometimes people, well, I, actually not sometimes. I'm just hearing this a lot that people feel like they just cannot get that um, their foot in the door or that one lucky break or they can't get um, somebody to maybe, maybe they don't know anybody at the company and, and even word of mouth won't work for them. And right. I, don't, I don't know how, I don't know what to suggest to them. You know, um, obviously when I look at things, I, I try to think about the, the, the fullness of someone's life. Okay. So, you know, obviously great academic institutions are wonderful, but if it kind of looks like everybody else's resume, you know, this school, this obvious internship, this, um, you know, I saw a resume the other day of someone who went um, and spent a year in Rwanda helping them figure out, um, you know, how to do payments uh, systems that didn't harm women, for example. Now, obviously, I'm a little biased um, to that. You don't have to go, you don't have to move to a different continent. Um, but just something that kind of shows that you've got a real diversity of experience in your life, that um, you're going to just have different perspectives, you know, that I'm going to be able to learn from you. And the second thing is references. I, I think people don't think enough about references. They don't have to be fancy people. They don't have to be, you know, in fact, I think it hurts people when you put somebody that's a well-known person on the resume and that person says, you know, I know their mother. I never met them. I think that actually hurts. I think honestly, a professor who really knew you and wants to speak to what is so unique about you or your, when you interned your boss, um, no matter what level they were, can, can you get on the phone with them and hear about that? I think ref meaningful references also, I do tons of reference checking personally when I recruit people because probably all those years of presidential personnel. Oh, so that's uh, a good, like, what kind of questions do you like to ask the references? Um, you know, when, when there was a huge challenge, what happened, you know, mm. when, when they made a mistake, how did they handle it? Mm. Um, what would their team members, you know, say that they were like to work with? Um, you know, what would you say? And this is very important, both when I interview people, and when I reference check, I say everyone can't be good at everything. So not, you know, not the corny, what are your weaknesses? But if there's, here are six different things you're going to need in this job. Um, writing, um, you know, communication skills, uh, dealing with people, engaging with people, um, understanding, you know, how to put a business plan together, you know, what, whatever those might be. Tell me the things that you enjoy the most. Do you like the operational piece, the creative piece? Um, because there aren't right and wrong answers. And when people are honest with me, that stands out so much. Mm -hmm. So when people say, I love putting the vision together and I'll work 24 seven and the concept and the deck, but you know what? I don't love managing people or budgets. I don't say, oh my God, they can't, be, they can't work here. I just say, that's interesting. Okay. So I might have a different person doing the operational because I don't believe any one person, except you, of course, no, um, has all the skills true. that you need. And it's so true. being really honest about what you're good at helps you so much at the beginning in the interview and also when you start. And I'm so like, I'm really like, um, you know, struck when people are really honest with me. I'll be honest so with you right now. No one will ever want me to do an Excel spreadsheet. I would rather cry and hide under my desk. Peter, my husband, he loves this Excel spreadsheet. He'll work on it all darn day. I just look at it. I'm like, I don't want to know. I don't even want to. I don't. I can't. I can't. 
I cannot think about it that way. It's so funny. I just like, I'll be very honest. No Excel spreadsheet for me. <laughs> I think you're doing okay though, without having to Maybe do that. So. And that's what makes you guys another example of a good match because he can do the Excel spreadsheets for you. There's a subchapter in the, in my book, um, in which I say the perfect work-life balance revealed. And then the first line is ha ha made you look because I don't think it exists. There is no perfect work-life balance, but We've mentioned Doesn't. you have six daughters with your husband, yeah. Dave. You have two dogs. You have an amazing job. Uh, you are a, a beautiful woman with all these friends, an amazing social life. You do all this charity work. How do you figure out a work-life balance for yourself? Well, I don't believe there's such a thing, like you said. I, I think it's detrimental when we suggest that. I think, let's just tell the truth, it's really hard to work and be a parent and to get it right. And there are going to be so many moments that you're feeling like you're failing one or the other, your family, because you're not there when you need to be, or your work, because you just could not miss that family thing. I had a friend one time say to me, if I had graded myself every day, it'd be pretty harsh. So instead I take like an average of a week. And if I knew that I could not miss my daughter's, you know, soccer game, um, and it meant I couldn't be in a meeting, you know, physically at work, then I did that. And if I knew that there was no way I couldn't go on that client trip um, and I was going to miss something with the kids, I had to do that. And if I was a solid B, B plus by the end of the week, that's as good as I could do. And I think that is the reality of the world. And I think it's also just time to really be honest that things just don't work out the way that you thought and, and the beautiful picture that you imagined mm -hmm. in your mind. And that's okay because life isn't meant to be um, perfect. It's meant to be meaningful. And so, you know, of course, I, I went through a divorce and that was really sad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even um, bringing two families together, there was lots of rockiness mm -hmm. and hard times. And that made it even harder, honestly, during my, you know, during uh, in my career. Um, but, you know, again, the totality of it. Yeah, um, you guys did it. I, Everybody worked together it. and did it. It's good and bad days, but overall, I wouldn't change anything. Mm -hmm. And I think just that's shown, I hope my girls some resiliency as well. So let's be honest about it with each other, um, that it's not the perfect painting, but it's a purposeful life. And I think that's that's much that's what I'm striving Could for. Could you tell day. people about how President Bush approached um, making sure that the working moms in his administration had the, what they needed in order to try to do both for as long as they could? Oh, my gosh, he was really extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, he would just I remember when I had a newborn and I came back to work and when he would find me in a late, late meeting, he'd say, what are you doing here? You go home right now. And he would yell at any of the senior leaders in the White House, you know, you're going to run off all my women. Do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> I, I want them to, I understand that it's the White House and I understand. Um, and obviously the White House, you're serving the American people in such an important way, no matter honestly how senior you are, or junior you are. So there's certain moments in your life where you put your head down and you say to your family, this is going to be a little bit more of a heavy service, right? I mean, you think about um, in a much more important and a much more critical way, the men and women who serve abroad, who, who leave families behind to protect our nation, um, you have to honor that service. And so I do think there are certain um, you know, um, amazing uh, roles and service in our country that take you away and, and you just have to respect that. But I know that for him, he wanted a lot of women. He had many senior women and he knew that, you know, if you made it impossible um, 
for for parents, by the way, not just women. He was great with men too, as you remember. Yeah. Get home, get to that soccer game, you know, be a parent too, because then I might have you around for a, a couple more years instead of you just pushing through and I lose you in six months. Exactly. And so I think that's something that bosses should really think about. And I think more and more they are. Um, so that's something. Okay, so I've, I've kept you long enough. I know we have to let you go. I, I always ask this question of my um, former Bush administration colleagues. And we could take the question in a couple of different ways. I'd, I'd love like a moment that you had with President Bush that you think of like as like your best moment or maybe one that was not funny at the time, but is funny now. Looking back, I have several of those. Um, I will share with you one that I sent him a note this weekend that um, on Saturday, it was our 16th anniversary. So I sent him a happy anniversary note. I'm sure he was like, what in the world is she talking about? I don't What could this be? Well, my first trip um, as deputy press secretary that I did solo with him on Marine One was 16 mm-hmm. years ago on Saturday, July 31st. And we went to the Boy Scout Jamboree. And it was on an evening and he was meant to go on the Tuesday night and then the Wednesday night and then the Thursday. Well, there had been so many thunder and lightning storms. And in fact, five, I believe, I believe two of the Boy Scouts died um, from lightning strikes that year. They didn't cancel the whole jamboree. And the Secret Service kept telling the president he wasn't going to be able to go because of the weather. And so Tuesday night gets canceled. Wednesday nights get canceled. Thursday night, they want to cancel it again. And he says, absolutely not. We are going. So I... Didn't even know where I was supposed to sit on Marine One. And Scott McClellan walked me through it so I wouldn't you know, embarrass myself. And on the way home after that speech, I remember, you know, those long sunsets that take place in the summertime in June and or, um, June and July in Virginia. We're coming back and there's this long sunset and the White House mess had packed a, a, a lunch dinner type box for him. And we get back on the chopper to fly home to D.C., and he opens up his box, and inside was his favorite, which was peanut butter and honey sandwiches. And he had two, and then he handed one to me. And I said, oh, no, sir, I'm fine. Thank, thank you. I didn't want to eat the president's sandwiches. You know, like, this is his dinner. And he looked at me, you know, with that way. He's like, ah, come on. So I said, okay. And then so we had peanut butter, honey sandwiches, and sun chips. And he hates the cheese kind. Just He just wants the plain kind. And... We, he just asked me about myself and got to know me. And when I think about like one of my favorite moments, that was really of nothing of consequence at all for the American people. But it made a huge difference in my life and my ability to interact with somebody that was in such a powerful position. But he made me feel at ease. And I love that one. And of course, everybody knows about how I got kicked out of the Oval Office through no fault of my own. But still, I did. And then I was still upset about it 10 years later. And he finally said, you need to get over it. And I... I said, okay, I will try. But as you can tell, I still am not. So if that sparks any memories for you, we'll leave people with a little story about your time with George W. Bush. Oh, my gosh. Well, obviously, what a privilege and so, so many different ones. I'm feeling like I have to close out with the one that, that comes back and shows that my dad is not so terrible from when he said, you know, I did I mean? <laughs> great. Way, that, hey, you should be in television. You just wrap that right around. <laughs> Well, um, you know, you know, I told you the story about how they were so worried about me and I wasn't going to law school and, um, you know, um, they didn't understand this politics thing because where they came from, ordinary citizens didn't participate in government. And so um, all the years that I was, quote, deferring law school, they kept saying, when are you going to go to law school? When are you going to go to law school? And um, 
you know, long story short, I end up at the White House. I'm obviously so, so proud to be there. They come to to the a White House event and President Bush looks over and can clearly tell that it's my dad. And he walks right over to him and he says, um, you must be Mr. Habib. And my dad is in total shock, can't really respond. And um, he says, well, you know, you know how President Bush is. You raised a great girl and she's an important advisor to me. And it, who knows if that was true or not, but it was so sweet. And my dad literally just couldn't speak. And the president walked away and I was kind of like, you didn't say anything. And he said, I just can't believe it. And he got very emotional. One of the few times I ever saw my father emotional, he said, you know, um, at this moment, as proud as I am of you, I'm so truly proud that there is a country in the world where a man can bring a four-year-old girl who doesn't speak a word of English and one day watch her serve the president of his adopted country. And you know, goosebumps, right? Mm -hmm. And President Bush somehow knew, I don't know how, it's like as if he knew that it would matter so much to this um, family who had left everything behind in hopes that their children, um, you know, would have this chance um, to pursue their potential in the United States. And it, it meant the world. And so his ability to be the leader of the free world on the one hand, and to know something that was so important to me and our family, what is is remarkable? It is, and it go, and it happens over and over again. If you pick up out of one many President Bush's new book of uh, portraits that he painted of immigrants, you will find one of the most amazing and beautiful Dina Powell uh, right there in the book. I was so excited. I was so excited when I read the book, and I didn't know it was going to be in there. And I turned the page, like, oh, it's Dina. And now, um, not only can people see that portrait and learn about you there, but thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. I think that this will be very, very well received by all of our listeners out there. Thank you so much, Dina. Thank you, Dana. It was an honor to be with you. So proud of you. Thanks for having me today. I kept Dina longer than I probably should have, but she has so much great advice for all of us, and I love learning from her. Uh, So hopefully you enjoyed that as well. She's got a lot of good insights and take all of that good advice to heart, especially about how service can help with your leadership skills. And make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.